welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Good afternoon to everyone. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. My name is Michael Steingo, and I'm a client advisor on the North American institutional team here at J.P. Morgan. I'm pleased to have my colleagues from Security Capital, Ken Scott and Bob Colver, here with me today to discuss the REIT market. Ken is a co-founder of Security Capital, head of strategy, and a member of the portfolio management team. Bob is head of new strategies and client service. Now, this is a particularly interesting time to be talking about the REIT market, and we're hearing a lot of questions from our clients on REITs. For a little context, REITs were up 6.2% heading into March, and then were down approximately 40% year-to-date on March 23rd. Now, since then, the REIT index has rebounded, but there's a wide performance dispersion among property types and companies. To some extent, REITs offer a window into the impact of social distancing on different parts of the economy, office hotels and retail on one hand versus data centers and residential on the other. There are also plenty of questions about what the industry may look like in the future, and we have the right folks on the phone to answer these questions. So, Bob, before diving into a discussion of the REIT market, I think it would be helpful for the callers to understand a little bit about who Security Capital is, how long the team has been investing in the REIT market, and how your unique multi-tranche approach gives you a different lens when analyzing the market. Thanks, Mike, and welcome to everybody. Thanks for joining us today. I want to make these comments on security capital brief so we can leave plenty of time to talk about the market, the risks, and opportunities today. But one overarching observation first, boy, is this a time for active management backed by experience. Security Capital is a team of 23 professionals. We're all based in Chicago, and we're all working remotely now, successfully trading, doing our research, all of the normal things that we do prior to the pandemic. We're conducting business as has been our history since 1995. We've got a very long tenured team, not only in the industry, starting with experience coming out of the 70s, but also as a team together since 1995. That experience is meaningful and important in times of crisis like this. We've managed as a team through 9-11, through the GFC. Pre-GFC, we returned a billion dollars to our investors, not because we saw that crisis coming, but because our fundamental research focused on cash flow, understanding balance sheets, and understanding the businesses of REITs suggested that they were expensive. Similarly, but for different reasons, we came into covid with over 40% cash, no hotels, no retail, and no healthcare. Again, not because we saw the pandemic, but because we didn't like the businesses, the cash flows, and the pricing of those spaces. We've been owned by J.P. Morgan for the last 17 years. We have about $3.5 billion under management. And as Mike said, we have a multi-tranche approach, investing in REIT common equity, REIT preferreds, and REIT debt. That allows us to combine those securities in different ways to accomplish different goals for our partners, but it also helps inform our decisions, say, on the opportunistic side, understanding the balance sheets and cash flows needed to pay back debt and pay the coupons and preferreds makes us better equity investors for our partners. We've been seeing a lot of interest in that common equity side return-seeking common equity investments through custom separate accounts as well as our go-everywhere fund. I would say, in general, our partners are biased toward looking for opportunities in this environment. 
those are quick highlights of security capital, but I think the team that you're talking to is built on deep research, understanding cash flows from properties, property by property, address by address, rolling all of that up, understanding the balance sheets and the risks of the companies, the environment that we invest in. And so with that, let me turn it back to you, Mike. Thanks, Bob. That's a very helpful background. Ken, can you talk about the state of the REIT market heading into this COVID-19 crisis and how it reacted to shutting down the economy? In addition, we know there's been wide dispersion among the REITs in the subsequent recovery. Can you touch on that also, please? Yes, of course. Thank you. And good afternoon, everyone. I'm going to sort of set the stage for REITs pre-COVID and talk about how we looked at valuation, fundamental trends, and balance sheet structure Basically, as of February 21st, 2020, why that date? Well, that was the peak in pricing for the real estate market in public format this cycle. And as we all know, it was a very long cycle with the luxury of ongoing employment growth and good occupancies and excellent rent patterns. As we sat in 221, we look at real estate valuations in the public market three different ways. And I'm just going to briefly touch on just to set the stage, sort of what those three different valuation systems were telling us. And roughly, we're looking at REITs as real estate in our first valuation bucket. Then we look at them as stock because there's a lot of investors that own them as part of their stock portfolio. And then third, we look at them as income alternatives, bond substitutes. So in general, when we were sitting in February 21st, when Bob mentioned we had lots of cash, we were very skewed against certain property types. Bottom line, what we were looking at was REITs were trading at about a 7% premium to their real estate value as best we could determine with our large analyst team. This was very different than even a prior 18 months before when REITs were selling at 12 to 15% discounts to real estate value. So as a real estate player sitting in February after a terrific run in 2019, and as Mike mentioned, an initial run in 20, REITs were expensive real estate. Secondly, as stock, they were at an all-time high price-to-cash flow multiple, 23.4 times. That also, as a stock player, one would say, gosh, boy, real estate in public format has gotten the ticket here. The ticket is great employment growth, tight occupancies, and as we'll mentioned, a very accommodative debt market. So equity, which is part of our multi-tranche system, looked very expensive The only part is income substitute as we were sitting there in February, which kept us in the REIT market. As debt, they looked pretty interesting. And, you know, they had a 6.1% unlevered rate of return, which given the 1.5% interest rate environment right there was a very substantial yield spread. So one out of three valuation systems were looking pretty good as we went into March. I think the second thing, though, as we set the table is although overall REIT pricing looked interesting, there had already been significant underlying trends creating huge return dispersion in the overall REIT market. Specifically, if you were talking about retail, hotels, very, very weak touch with the economy. We all know about online buying, et cetera, really taking a lot of market share away from traditional brick-and-mortar retailers. We also noted that the transient use of hotels was way down and causing very, very poor results in hotels. And so what we had noticed was many of the areas of the REIT market were suffering from long-term multiple erosion. 
Over the last five years, the multiple of Simon property, for example, had declined on average 9% a year. So we went into this with a lot of property types, more traditional core, really suffering from a pricing basis. On the flip side, we had new entrants like data, industrial, which has been around for a while, all showing extraordinary growth in multiples and leading the way in terms of total rate of return. So the bottom line is we went in generally full. We went in generally happy with great balance sheets. In fact, the best balance sheet structure we've seen in a generation. But with underlying this overall good outlook for REITs, significant underlying differentials and trends. So let's go into March and shelter in place and the drastic need to shut down the economy and shut down any place that people would congregate to try to get ahead of the spread of the virus had an incredibly disparate effect on commercial real estate. We'll go into these a little deeper, but clearly there's a real interrelationship between REIT holdings and shelter in place because, for example, data, the need to be at home, work at home, shop from home, et cetera, all the trends on the infrastructure of data transmission obviously has had little, in fact, probably a positive effect on the part of the REIT industry that is in data transmission. Likewise, industrial, very good trends going in, great business, arguably a better business coming out in terms of what people have learned, how they can shop at home, et cetera. But there's a really interesting sort of interrelationship between office and residential. Obviously, residential, people had to shelter at home. But interestingly, with the advance in technology, people could also work at home. If you're in the white-collar business, I think most of the people on the phone here are probably working from home. Your business model of your employer continued to function. You can continue to pay rent. Equity residential's average income of a rent payer in their multifamily portfolio is $160,000 of income a year. Because people could actually work at home, shop from home, Residential had a very different reaction than retail. Likewise, office. Office has long-term leases. That's terrific. But office, because the business model of the people who had rented the space, they're actually in business. They're actually making money. They're actually able to pay rent. So that whole group had very high rent recovery ratios in the month of March into April into May, anywhere from 95 up to potentially 100%. So near term, you have a vastly different kind of rent collection than you do on the other side, where let's take retail and hotel. There, the underlying folks can't operate. They had to shut their hotels. They had to shut their retail. And in that process, the underlying tenants stopped paying rent. Obviously, hotels, rent collection went to almost nothing. In retail, 40 to 60% recoveries, even though there were the same kind of quality leases office had, even though they had credit tenants. In fact, credit tenants in general didn't pay any rent. And so you have just a whole different reaction to this collapse in demand where parts of the REIT market have sailed through this very, very well so far. There'll be very good long-term implications we can talk about future demand. But other parts of the REIT market are suffering in a highly unique way with no cash flow or little cash flow. So all of that really set the stage for how REITs really responded in March, coming out in April and May. Thanks, Ken. And we'll come back to diving into a little bit more on the property types. But one quick question in the meantime, as you talk about the COVID crisis, your team managed through the global financial crisis also. And can you touch on from a REIT perspective how this crisis has been different? 
Yeah, I think at least in three ways. First and foremost, as I mentioned, the nature of the collapse. Remember the GFC, which we obviously managed through, was a very long extended collapse in credit. And as being unsecured debt players, being highly invested eventually in the convertible debenture market, the GFC was first and foremost all about seizure of the financial market, seizure of the ability to get credit in a credit important area like REITs. It was a long process. It really hit all the property types for an extended period of time. Now, we think it's really interesting to look at the GFC on a day-by-day basis because when we overlay it with what's happened in this crisis, which, as I mentioned, is a different crisis, this is a crisis of demand and demand very differently affected by different property types. And so what we've done is we've been monitoring the REIT market from day one of the peak to 2120. In comparing it to the performance and attributes of the GFC, which peaked at 9-19-2008, over the period of time peaked to now, so day by day of trading days, you would see that the REIT market is only off about 18% through yesterday, when during the GFC, same number of days, the REIT market was off 50%. So a very, very different kind of playthrough. And what's fascinating to us is the first 21 days of the decline, trading days, you could overlay what was happening in today's REIT market identically. Oh, it's just a very eerie graph to what was happening during the GFC, i.e. in the first 21 days, there was a 40% decline in both markets, in both market periods. And in both market periods, everything was taken down to varying degrees. Starting in day 22, there was a dramatic recovery so far from 40%. 20% so far this quarter, today off another five. It's very volatile. But why is there such a differential? And the reason is, number one, again, there's the important parts of the REIT market that, quite frankly, aren't experiencing anything dire right now. There'll be some issues here or there, but they're chugging along on their cash flow just fine. Other parts are devastated. So if we kind of look at property types, you'd find that industrial peak to now, this cycle is only off 1% as we speak. Regional malls are off 42%, much like they were during the GFC. So regional malls, shopping centers, hotels are off more in line with the GFC experience, even year to date, or peak to date. And it's really interesting to us, in the middle, office and residential, which we'll get into, they're off about half as much as they were during the GFC. They're not emerging unscathed, even though their rent collections are really quite good. There's real concern in the office and residential space that is causing 20, 25% declines in value since peak. So bottom line, there's a disparate action in rent collection. And in the GFC across the board, it was all about financial structure, balance sheet. Everybody was in duck soup at once. This is a very specific kind of decline. Now, that's very important because the composition of the REIT market is dramatically different today than it was during the GFC. The areas like data, single-family homes, storage, what we call emerging core specialty, now dominate the REIT business. And that's a very important point that we have to make. You cannot make conclusions from REIT overall performance today versus a traditional core real estate account. The traditional areas that we'll be talking about today really are less than half of the overall REIT market in composition. So the composition of the REIT market is very different versus the GFC. And then finally, the government action has been wildly different. I remember during the early days of the GFC, listening to Hank Paulson, who's my old boss when I was at Goldman Sachs, 
And he was then the secretary of the treasury. And in the early days, there was anger that there were villains. There was people that were wrong, that they had over-leveraged homes. They were flipping homes. And the government wasn't going to get involved. They were just going to let them take their lumps. This collapse was sudden. And I guess, if I can say it this way, there's no villains. I mean, everybody's being affected by healthcare and the horrific tragedy of death, et cetera. So I think the government quickly changed and quickly got their act together to just spray this market with liquidity. And the moment we started to get the Fed pumping in liquidity in March, REIT values started turning in varying degrees. As I mentioned, in essence, through yesterday, the better part of the REIT market that had good secular trends going into this are unscathed. I mean, they're off a little. There's not much going on there. And they're 30% of the overall REIT market. On the flip is all the places that rely on theaters and restaurants and shopping, they're looking a lot like the GFC in terms of how they're performing. Got it. Thank you. I know we've touched on this already, but diving in a little deeper, can you give us a sector breakdown of the five most prevalent core property types? retail, multifamily, office, hotels, and industrial, by how they reacted to the crisis, which you already touched upon a little bit, but then your outlook for each one. Sure. Let's start with retail. It can only get better. Going into the crisis, as I mentioned, obviously retail, which let's just roughly divide it into two areas, shopping centers and regional malls. Certainly all retail, but very different risks, very different rewards. The mall business going into this as I mentioned, with Simon Properties ongoing multiple decline over several years, was a tough business. Why is it such a tough business? Well, the switch to online shopping has been especially hard for malls. Heavy in apparel, heavy in department stores required to bring in business. And as a mall owner, you don't own a lot of your department store space. It was a really, really tough situation in terms of How do you refit malls to be relevant? How do you get new tenants without spending just an enormous amount of capital? So it's a tough business. Coming out of this, it's a really tough business. And that's why I think why you see not only is Simon the best, biggest sort of gorilla in the business off 45, 50%, but essentially like what happened in the GSC when general growth went bankrupt, the only bankruptcy that happened, most of the smaller mall players have evaporated. They're penny stocks. So that part of the business is really tough. And I think security capital is such a detailed real estate investor in public format. We have to just have some humility as we talk about opportunities in mall space. Most of the questions we need to fill out are highly detailed five-year modeling. There are no answers for how much bankruptcy is going to happen. As our head of research, Kevin Bedell, recently said, we've gone from who's on the watch list for malls to who's not on the watch list for malls. And so there's very low conviction on cash flow. There's no visibility right now on rent collection. I mentioned 40 to 60% for shopping centers. Simon is silent. We do know they're suing Gap for 50 million bucks of unpaid rent, but it's just silent right now. So for a high conviction investor like us, it is a really toxic area that eventually we'll probably have some dislocated interest in. But right now, it's something we can't touch. Shopping centers are a better story. They actually have tenants with working business models, Ross, Burlington, TJ Maxx. It's arguable they are come out of this stronger than they were. However, we were highly retailed going into this mess, and we're even more highly retailed coming out of it. So even though good quality shopping centers, and we can think of like Regency, a great grocery anchor, 
They own 400 centers out of 40,000, highly select centers. They're a good choice for retailers over the long term. They've got grocers doing good business, drugstores doing good business, but they make their bread and butter on mom and pop and inline space. And it's just a tough situation right now. Lots of deferral, lots of discussions going on, both with tenants and with their bankers. And so shopping centers is certainly an area that we would find future interest in, but we're treading that area very lightly right now because, again, the companies don't know how to explain 2020, and the companies don't know how to explain 2021, a little more clarity in 2022. So let's just put, in terms of the traditional retail area, which, by the way, is only 7% of the REIT market right now. It's almost a shocking number. It was 25% five years ago. Retail, if you're looking at REIT performance in general, it's only 7%. I mean, it's less than half data which is 16%. So the REIT market's not saying a lot right now because there's not a lot to talk about. It's not a big part of what we do. Now let's sort of move up the food chain here and let's talk about office. Office has been in a tough position for a while. It's historically been a very capital intensive business that the REIT market has not really embraced terribly well. Clearly, Western Californian kind of real estate markets for office, San Francisco, et cetera, have had real rent growth over this cycle. But the big story in office has been what's going on with New York. So coming into this, you saw multiple erosion in Boston properties, for example, that over the last five years, a multiple has eroded 6% a year. Again, that's a cross current, a trend that we think the decline is even accelerating in terms of what's happening. Now, you won't see it in an office right away because of these long-term leases. We think what will happen is people try to figure out, well, who wants to continue to work at home? Oh, by the way, if you're coming into work and you have to take the subway, how the heck do we get you up to your floor if you own gateway high-rise office? That's all to come and figure out. But in the meantime, their tenants are paying. Their rent collection is very good. And we assume that over time, they'll probably get a lot of short-term renewals as corporations kind of figure out what their path will be. Now, the market's taken notice of this. So unlike retail, where it's a big question mark, once we look at a Boston properties, we'd note the following. In February, you paid $847 a square foot for Boston properties. Replacement cost probably 1000 bucks. That's sort of normal equilibrium pricing. Today, you'd be paying $630 a square foot in just two months later. Is that the right amount? Well, it's a 7% cap rate. For those of you who are familiar with cap rates in the commercial real estate market, saying that Boston Properties office, with all the problems future, yeah, how much space will be needed? Less. Will people want to be in the city? Will they want to go to Nashville? Will they want to go to Tampa? All those are relevant questions that we'll all be watching. But at the meantime, the public market's taken 200 bucks a square foot off of Boston Properties. And that starts to get interesting, I think, as we're looking through the lens of office. Not compelling, but is a 7% cap rate interesting to a real estate player? Well, prior to March, it would be unheard of for this portfolio to be trading there with their investment grade balance sheet. So as we move up the food chain, things get a lot more interesting. When you go to residential, multifamily has been in a golden era, absolutely golden era. The prime demographic was in the ages of 25 to 30. Those are the people that typically rent apartments. We also had single professional women delay having children. 
kept them in apartments longer than expected. And so demand has been terrific and especially terrific in a multifamily for urban gateway high-rise apartments. That was starting to wane a bit as we're going into this, as people were looking perhaps for lower cost options than paying $4,000 a month for a studio apartment. And that's another question mark coming out of this. I think one of the reasons multifamily is off so significantly is not a question of near-term rent collection. It's terrific. But a question of whether there's really a change geographically and where you want to own apartments. People may come out of this wanting more space. They may want a place they can work at least part-time in their apartments. And this is arguing for Southeast and Southwest. And the market's noticing that. The market is paying more, a lower discount rate, higher multiple for multifamily located outside of the gateway cities. And so that's an area that's also fascinating. And the market's making a bet that people will tend to want to sort of be in place in apartments still, but they may not want to be in midtown Manhattan high rise. They may not want to be in San Francisco high rise. It might be spreading out. So lots of interesting opportunities. It's investable and residential. And then finally, industrial. I mean, industrials, of course, was a terrific business coming into the pandemic. And it's a terrific business going out with some caveats. It's not cheap. There's been very little net price movement in the price of industrial. Obviously, people learning to shop at home, people learning to do all sorts of things. Many of us older folks never did. The logistics warehousing system in America, ProLogis, for example, estimates we need 400 million square feet of new industrial to sort of complete how America will probably work over the next five years. Terrific for the industrial area. With one big caveat, you better not own the wrong industrial because that means there's some obsolescence in the way the economy worked before. So in the major food groups that we have, you know, a brief time to talk to today, it's a very clear statement in our research that the pandemic has accelerated and been a catalyst on the downside for areas that were already suffering. And we're relying, for example, on retail, on entertainment and restaurants and movie theaters to have tenants and have some excitement. It has accelerated bad trends in place. And it's one of the reasons, as Bob mentioned earlier, we are not invested. We're not chasing those areas, even though they're highly dislocated, as I mentioned, versus sort of the same patterns in the GFC. However, once you move up the food chain into at least neutral secular trends to excellent secular trends, there's a lot to like. And there's a lot to do in that space in the commercial real estate market. Great. How about the secular trends for the emerging core, self-storage, data center, single family for rent? Can you touch on that? Sure. And of course, as we're talking about all of this, as I mentioned, those trends were terrific going in, right? In many cases, the only problem was supply. Storage is a great business. The market's really warmed to it over the years, but there's too much supply. Storage is unique because there are many levers a storage operator can use to keep people in place in the storage business and gradually raise their rent because they kind of forget that they actually have the storage and these companies raise their rent every month and just sort of belatedly notify them. It's been a terrific business, but they also lease it all online now. Clearly, they still have some folks in the leasing office, but it's unique in the sense it has very good demand, very good touch with the economy, too much supply prior to this which will slow down. But their business model, they actually lease without you ever seeing anybody. And you actually put your stuff in without seeing anybody. So that's an interesting business that it's 
biggest bugaboo with supply that perhaps this collapse in overall markets will certainly stop the ongoing starts of new supply in storage, which long-term will be positive. In data we mentioned already, you know, Equinex just came out today to say one of the big data providers. They're looking at some problems with their customer base in terms of providing services to retail and other areas affected. Like, for example, it's 3% of their revenue stream. Overall, they're still saying 7 to 9% revenue growth this year. I mean, that's just compelling. And data has gone from being a very small initial part of the REIT business to, as I mentioned, 16% of the REIT space now is the data centers. I add data in industrial, 30% of the REIT market are those two categories, which explains why REITs aren't as off as much as maybe some people would think given the horrific conditions in retail and hotel. Single-family homes, terrific business. Our thesis is intact. If you could think of a business that came in strong, great revenue growth, new business to the public markets relatively, but one with tremendous demand, very little supply and new housing, just some problems with operating data. You know, How do you actually manage an 85,000 single-family home portfolio? The thesis is intact because what they're providing is privacy, a backyard, affordable cost. All of this as the golden era of multifamily, it's not over, but it starts to wane, is sort of a natural complement to where will folks go next. They might not buy a home, but they do want a yard. They do want a school. They do want all of those things. And so that space was experiencing rapid multiple appreciation, earnings multiple appreciation over the last two years. It's even more terrific right now, longer term. Short term, they'll have some rent collection issues. You can't have millions and millions of people unemployed without having some rent collections here or there. But in general, they're better than expected, you know, in the low 90s to 94% rent collection. So that's an area with terrific touch going in. Clearly some disruption from unemployment and ongoing unemployment in the meantime. But longer term trends, that's an area that we find compelling. It is very a focus of what we have. Finally, hotels. Holy Toledo. What do you do with hotels? There's nobody there, right? And even as hotels are opening and markets are opening, basically the kind of hotels owned in the public market REITs, those kind of hotels have certain leisure business in their portfolio. They have drive-to resorts, but it's a minority. By and large, the public market for REITs in hotels have a lot of convention space. They have a lot of need for transient, i.e. business travel. They need people to go to conventions. These hotels don't work otherwise. And so the only thing hotel REITs are doing is opening up selectively hotels to, quote, unquote, lower their burn rate. We just came out of NARI, talked to all the hotels for an extended period of time via Zoom. And it's not a happy story, obviously. And when they do open a hotel, as I said, it's not because they're going to make money. They're going to lose less money. There's some specific anecdotes of great hotels in Florida having a packed Memorial Day weekend. Well, the moment Memorial Day was over, guess what? It was empty. And so it's almost they lose money simply by hiring folks to open them up. So things have to change in hotel world. We need people not just to travel occasionally on a retail basis. We need all the people on the phone to start getting in the plane, moving and seeing clients, seeing companies before you get anything like the old days in what was still a weak pattern for hotels. Is that 22? Is that 23? All we know is the hotels right now, 
are an interesting longer-term play. But probably like in the GFC, very few people really made money playing hotels. They made money in blind pools that were created to buy hotels because in the private and public market, there will be a lot of over-leveraged hotels that either never open or just get sold at a very low price. Unfortunately, the hotel REITs are not in a position to do anything. One of the things we learned was bankers have been pleasant, quote-unquote, as pleasant as a banker can be in all of this, sort of in a kumbaya moment because it's no one's fault. However, as they're going through debt covenants, as they're going through all the different ramifications, they're tying these hotel REITs up, can't pay dividends, can't buy back stock, can't be anywhere near offensive. They're just timing their burn rates right now. So that is not a security capital kind of format to buy dislocation. So that's in the emerging or non-traditional core. You've got some terrific patterns going in. You've got some disruption. But ultimately, this is an area we can see things accelerating. And in our cash flow models, actually in five years, cash flow and some of these are higher than we expected going into the pandemic. That's rare. That is giving us, in all of this turmoil, some real investment raw material to work with. Well, thank you for the overview of all those sectors. Many investors have been asking us about what the performance of the REIT market might tell us about the private markets, obviously a much larger market. Is there anything you think the REIT market is getting wrong right now? Well, I think, as I've been highlighting, the overall REIT market probably can't be used to interpret much (laughs) because the overall REIT market is filled with all sorts of different reactions to the pandemic, all different pricing results, and all sorts of, quite simply, the risk-reward trade-off varies widely. And a REIT portfolio balanced to current REIT indexes really has less and less to do with how a traditional core real estate portfolio would be held by institutions. Quite simply, there's very little overlap. Unless you're an institutional investor in in commercial real estate and 30% of your portfolio is industrial and data, and you have 7% in retail, the overall movement of what's happening is probably not too indicative. However, you can go property type by property type. And I think what the REIT market has been getting wrong, certainly in the second quarter, is there's all types of REIT investors. You know, there's security capital. We're in it to buy real estate. But there's momentum players, there's yield players. And I think this 20% rebound has been a puzzle to us because where people are getting the conviction to buy up, especially the dislocated part of the commercial real estate market in public format, we don't know, the companies don't know, the tenants don't know, and our highly detailed models are blank right now in many cases. So I think what the REIT market perhaps has gotten wrong so far this year, has been a rush to buy dislocation, a rush to buy, well, it's down 50%, it must be a value. I don't think so. And so I think that would be the primary thing the REIT market's getting wrong. But I don't know if that gives much comfort to folks who own a lot of properties in those areas. Thank you, Ken. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, 
figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, U.K., Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.